Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Kirk Walden has been advocating for the lives of the unborn since 1991 when he became the director of a small pregnancy help center in Auburn, Alabama. Over the last 17 years, he's focused on fundraising for Heartbeat International, which supports pregnancy centers, adoption agencies, and maternity homes. In this interview, I ask him about how he talks to both Christians and non-Christians about this sensitive and emotionally explosive issue. He lays out his case using biblical and scientific reasoning, but what really comes through strongest is his incredible sense of compassion for those who find themselves in this situation. I pepper him with a number of other common objections, and he answers each. He's a real example of the balance between holding to what you believe is right, and yet at the same time showing kindness to someone that you disagree with. Here now is Interview 38, Advocating for the Unborn, with Kirk Walden. Welcome, Kirk, to Restitutio. I'm so glad you could join me today. It's good to be with you, Sean. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Sounds like we've got a lot on the plate. (laughs) Let me start by asking you about your current role in the pro-life movement. What is it you do? I have several roles, Sean, and one of them is with Heartbeat International. I'm an advancement specialist for them, and Heartbeat, based out of Columbus, Ohio, is the world's largest affiliate network of pregnancy help organizations, which includes pregnancy help centers, which used to be known as crisis pregnancy centers, adoption agencies, nonprofit, and maternity homes. And so we work with them as a support group, which we provide training manuals, all these sorts of things. We just had an international conference last week in Anaheim, and which tells you we are all over the world. And in fact, we have an underground center in China. Uh, We've got them in South Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, Ukraine, everywhere. So uh, it's an amazing movement to be a part of with Heartbeat. And uh, I enjoy that immensely because I get to talk with people all over the place and help them as they go forward with the vision God has for them. And in addition, I speak at events for these setters, all, usually in America. I've been in Canada before, but here in the United States, mostly I speak at their fundraising dinners and enjoy that very much because I get to connect with so many people who believe in life and, and who have a heart for it. And it's fascinating because this is one ministry which draws so many people in from so many different backgrounds. Right. Uh, I've, I've spoken at an Amish community center. I've uh, spoken at Catholic groups before uh, that are primarily Catholic, Evangelical, Baptist, whatever you want to call it. I've had a chance to mix and mingle with so many different groups and see where they're coming from. In fact, learn from them, and I pray that they learn from me as well. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and we've we've been able to raise some funds over the years. I've been doing that for 17 years, and uh, a few years ago wrote a book called The Wall, which is... uh, a vision of what Nehemiah did translated to this century and what pregnancy centers are doing, because I believe that that these centers are building a wall of hope, much like Nehemiah did for the Israelite people, where those facing this difficult situation, an unplanned pregnancy, can come inside that wall of hope and be safe 
from those who might prey upon them for a profit. So those are the things I do. And uh, I've been involved in this since 1991. And every time I think I'm going to be doing some other things, this keeps coming back and I still uh, stay involved. So it's, uh, it's exciting. Well, how, how in the world did you get into this field? I mean, is there a, a college major uh, that you took or what, what uh, got you started in this? Actually, no, I, I got involved officially in 1991, but I think it can go back to 1980. I was at a Baptist church, a pastor shared a message on the sanctity of life. And I thought I, I sensed a calling to be a part of making abortion obsolete in my lifetime. And that was when I was 18 years old, and I got involved in pro-life work in different ways. Political end, did some public policy stuff with my degree in journalism from Auburn. And then in 1991, the director of a little pregnancy center there in Auburn, Alabama, where I was living at the time, was leaving to go to a larger center and asked me if I would apply for the now open position. I thought, oh my goodness, I wouldn't want to do that. But I did apply as a favor to this guy. And as going through the interview process, I had been praying for 10 years that the Lord would put me on the front line uh, when it comes to life. And I realized that the front line is inside a pregnancy center where you're sitting across from a young woman or young couple who are scared to death, thinking their only option is to end that pregnancy. Uh And we have an opportunity to show an alternative and to help them through. We are providing ultrasound, prenatal care. And a lot of things that someone in this situation needs for support. And so that's where I got started at a center in 91. And I was there for nine years, then began working on my own through a company called Life Trends, which which I founded, created. It was just me. Before I knew it, I was working with five or 600 centers around the country. And then Heartbeat International came along in 2009 and asked to partner with me. And then uh, they actually brought me in under their wing in 2014 as as part of the Heartbeat team. So it's just been one thing after another for the last whatever it is from 1991. Was that 27 years now? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, So this is really a lifelong passion. It is now. I kind of feel like if you ever saw the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, the guy becomes a music teacher trying to write his great screenplay or whatever. And it's just continued to this day. And I think I'll always, uh, we're doing a lot of different things, but I think I'll always be involved in this work uh, at some level. Okay, well, maybe we could just benefit from your knowledge here and hear a case. Like, let's say you're talking to a Christian who maybe grew up in in a different tradition where abortion was taught as acceptable and sort of like either a morally neutral issue or something that was normal in their in their group and but they do accept the scriptures as an authority. How would you address somebody in that scenario and build a case for life? That is a great question and and I'm glad you framed it in terms of talking to a Christian because it's totally different when you're talking to someone who doesn't claim to believe in the scriptures. But when you're talking to someone who does, I, I think a case can be made. I, here, here's what I usually see, Sean, is the idea of what, that we've come to in Western Christianity, which is tolerance. Oh, I wouldn't do it myself, but I don't want to judge anybody who does. And my answer would be, I, I guess, twofold. One is, who creates life? 
if we can agree that God creates life, then all we need to do is go to when, when does that life become life? When God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, is that, is that enough for us to go for right there? Uh, is it, I formed your most inward parts from Psalm 139? Can we go there? And I try to make it as simple as possible. Look, God creates life. Who am I to take that life? As simply as I can, and to say, and the popular thing from the 90s and stuff was, what would Jesus do? And I asked the Christian to say, look, I'm not asking you to come alongside me politically right now. I think that's another step for another day for a lot of Christians. But I'm asking you to answer the question, when Jesus faced someone in a pregnancy decision, if, if he had done that, if we could read that in the scriptures, what would he have done in that situation? Would he say, look, here's 600 bucks. There's an abortion clinic two miles away. I'll get you there and we can rid yourself of this problem. Or is Jesus bigger than that? Is the very son of God bigger than that? When he can draw upon all the power given to him from his father, is he bigger than that? Can he help somebody through? And if you're the hands and feet of Jesus, can you do the same thing? Because from my background, where I'm coming from, I believe that if Jesus could do it, he gave us the strength and power to do it too. There's no glass ceiling here where we say, well, Jesus was this or Jesus was that. No, Jesus was the son of God. Jesus gained all his power from his Father, and he's giving it to us. If we have that strength in us, if we have the Spirit of God in us, can we not say that we can offer something more than defeat? Because those who have had, who have made that decision to end the pregnancy will tell you they felt defeated and scared. And I, don't, and I will agree with the Christian say, I don't offer ultimate judgment to these people because there are so many in the Christian community who made that decision and are finding healing through Jesus Christ. So I'm not judging them as a person, but they'll be the first to say that decision was one they regret. So what would we do if we truly say we're following Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to do the hard thing. We're going to take them by the hand and say, I will not let you go. I will walk with you through this. I will be empathetic but I am also going to be someone who offers hope and solutions. So I won't leave you alone. That's what Christians do. And if we can offer that, if I can take that Christian and say, would you agree with me on that? We'll worry about the political stuff later. But if I can get them to the point where they're, they're willing to step in and say, you know, I agree that as Christians, we need to help those choose life so that they don't make a decision they'll regret later because every single life is valuable to God. Every one. So that's kind of where I'd go with the Christian. Yeah, I appreciate that. You remind me of the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Exactly. That one text in the Old Testament, but it's it's a little difficult because there are are, uh, a couple of ways to take it. But uh, for me, my theological stake in the ground on this issue is with love your neighbor as yourself. And whatever love means, we might disagree on specifics, but it certainly doesn't mean to kill your neighbor. <laughs> That's right. Who is my neighbor? Well, the neighbor is the person that you're, you're next to. Who's closer to a mother <laughs> than a baby? You know? So for me, that uh, very simplistic explanation, from a Christian point of view, seals a deal. And then also noticing that later 
Christians, when they did start writing on the subject of abortion, which is really right from the end of the first century, right. but not in the New Testament, and then into the second and third, and, and right up till recent times, there, there has been a, uh, a startling common voice on this subject, uh, right from the Didache forward or the Epistle of Barnabas, that um, th- this is just something that Christians don't do. You know, other people do it, but we don't do it. And so we've kind of lost that in some groups of Christianity. It is a legacy that I think we can look at to draw strength from. Uh, But of course, you know, the Scripture is what we look at as authoritative. Let me ask you about if you're talking to a non-Christian. Let's say you just have somebody that came into the clinic, and they're a secular person, they're non-religious, and how, how would you talk with them and reason with them? One of the main things is different for different people, obviously. One of the things that pregnancy centers try to do is ask good questions. <clears throat> First, what, what are you thinking about? What's important to you? And we want to minister to the mom. Uh, we realize that if we minister to her first, then we're going to reach the child. This is not a debate. Uh, I think <clears throat> years ago, some in pregnancy help ministry might have thought that, and this was many, many years ago, that the key was to win the debate and win the day. It's not anymore. What we realize is that there are women who come into the center and their boyfriends who say, I know it's a baby, but I've got to, in fact, I talked to women and I would say, well, what are you considering? And I'd bring up different options. And let's say I brought up adoption. They'd say, well, I'd rather have an abortion than give up my baby for adoption. And I asked, instead of because my first response, and my knee-jerk response, would be, I can't believe you'd think that. What Do you understand what you're saying? But I'd say, but instead I'd say, well, wh- why do you say that? Uh-huh. And, the, and the answer was interesting. She said, because I, at least I would know what happened to it. Wow. And I said, well, what would happen to it? And then this ethereal idea comes into mind, well, it would be gone. And almost a reincarnation idea that it'll get another chance later. And it's always it, not he or she. And so we realize that this really is a spiritual battle. And one of the things that we've seen is that as pregnancy centers, we want to say we offer choice. We offer choice to you. And you need the best need to make the best choice for you and your child. And now 1,500 centers offer ultrasound so she can see. And I think a picture paints a thousand words and for them to be able to see and then to say, Hey, you can do this. We believe in you and we believe. And then we begin to talk about faith just a little bit. Do you have faith? And it's amazing to see how many claim some sort of faith in something bigger than themselves. Right. And, and to be able to say, do you think there's hope in this situation? Do you think you can make it through? And yeah, they begin to see it. And so we begin to look at what are the needs because no one, I, we've come to understand, no one wakes up in the morning and says, except I've seen it on a couple of crazy shows on television where somebody says, I want to have an abortion. Okay, great, whatever. That's not what's really happening in the real world. No woman wakes up in the morning and says, I really want to have an abortion. They want to avoid it at all costs, but they don't see any way out. So what we do is offer ways, other alternatives. We will help you. Uh, We will find shelter for you. We will reach out to the father of this child because 83% of women who go to the abortion center 
will tell you that if the, the dad had been more supportive, they probably would have chosen life. So we're reaching out to dads in new ways. And again, ultrasound, somewhere between 75 and 85% of women who have abortion, at least on their mind, who see their child on the screen, change their minds because they've never, it's never become real. You can give all the facts in the world, Sean, and we can debate it. We can say a child's heart is beating at 18 days. They can feel at this point and all these different things. It doesn't reach home. But when you see that child on the screen, all of a sudden you hear things like, is that my baby? I had no idea that it was that grown up at this point. And we're talking seven weeks. So offering alternatives and showing truth is the way we're reaching people today because it's not a debate. You know, God will judge you, and I, that's not that's not going to work. It's just not. We can pull out, unfortunately, we can pull out every Bible verse in the world, but a lot of young ladies have been told for years, well, we don't, the Bible's not something, I mean, it's a good book, I'm sure, but we don't, we believe some of it, not some of it, so whatever. That's not going to win the day, but when they see their child on the screen and then you bring forth, did you know that God knew this child, already knows this child, and is reaching out to you right now? Wow, that that changes the picture. So uh, we bring hope. We bring hope, we bring help, and we offer. We offer ways through. We were just, Jen and I, my wife, were in a maternity home last week in San Diego, and it's just amazing what they're doing there. And to see a young lady who chose adoption stand up in front of 300 people and just say, I made that and excited about the home that her child is in, the adoptive home, boy, and it's because somebody reached out to her and said, we can walk with you through it. So yeah. long answer to a short question. No, I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's <clears throat> wonderful to hear someone who is speaking from experience, having been in the field, having had those conversations in that moment of crisis of decision, as opposed to many of us who are just sort of pontificating in our comfortable seats here, (laughs) speaking of myself. Now, in the case of these uh, crisis centers, you know, what I see here is a real willingness to sacrifice money, time, resources uh, on the Christian part for someone regardless of their faith, regardless of whether or not they would even in any way be supportive of Christianity. That aspect of this this whole movement is, the, to me, the most impressive. It's, it's for somebody to come along and say, look, whatever it takes for you to not end this child's life, we will do. We will support. We will find an adoption. We will... I heard this one interview where this guy was saying, I, I will stand online with you to get food stamps or whatever it is you need. And it, it, is this right. pretty much uh, what you see as well? Yes. I've got a lot of friends in this ministry on Facebook, and they'll say, hey, we've got a client who needs this, who needs that. And it's going through uh, the Lamaze classes. It's it's just walking through every step. It's finding housing. It's, it's uh, reaching the fathers and mentoring them. Because a lot of these men who are fathers of these babies, we, as a society, we call them deadbeat dads. But you know, The problem is these guys have never known dads. They don't know what to do. So we've got men coming alongside these these new dads and saying, you can do this. We'll walk with you through it. And you're right, whether it's uh, physical needs or emotional needs, yeah, that's what we do. I was just at a a center the other day in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 
and they offer psychological counseling because a lot of people who come into pregnancy centers have experienced sexual abuse at different times in their lives and, and different struggles. And a lot of those who serve in pregnancy centers, you talk about not judging. And I get on, and, and I get on our Christian community a little bit and say, look, this isn't about not judging because I can tell you probably 30% or 40% of the women who serve in pregnancy centers have had an abortion in their past. I know one volunteer who had had not one, not two, but seven. And she had finally come to faith in Jesus Christ and realized, wait a minute, she changed directions, following him and saying, one of the things I need to do is reach out to women who are in my situation. And so healing and forgiveness is available. And even if someone goes through with an abortion, our phone number's still there to bring healing uh, to that situation. So we reach out without regard, like you said, we don't know where people are in their walk of faith uh, when they come in. A lot of these ministries are evangelical. They want to share uh, the hope of Jesus Christ. They want to share that following Jesus Christ leads to reconciliation with his dad. Love to do that. But no matter what, we want to help and we want to support. Because that's what that that's what we see as our calling. And, and uh, it's an amazing thing to see people from all walks of life, Sean. I mean, I've, I know people who have nothing who are serving in these centers. And then the other night, I'm sitting with an, an NFL quarterback in Phillip Rivers, and we're having a, a fundraising dinner for this maternity home, and Philip is going to match every dollar raised. Wow. So people give and commit $110,000, and Philip and Tiffany say, we're writing the check, we're in. So... And he believes, I'm telling you, this guy is all in. He's got eight children. Believe me, they're all in. <laughs> <laughs> eight children. Woo. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah he, believes in, uh, he believes in children, that's for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Let, let me uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about the thornier topic of the legislation, the politics, and the issue <laughs> that people raise when they say, uh, you have no right to tell a woman what to do with her body. And uh, this whole um, way of framing the subject as pro-choice and sort of like anti-freedom if you're uh, against abortion. What, what would you say is your take on that whole subject? It really bothers me that those who believe in abortion on demand for all nine months for any reason, and they fight any restriction whatsoever. After viability, they fight that restriction. They fight 24-hour waiting periods because they want somebody to be able to go into an abortion center and have that abortion on the spot. They fight parental consent. They want 14-year-olds to be able to go to an abortion center behind their mom's back and, and dad's back and have an abortion because the view is that parents are the evil ones and that these kids are just trying to have their free. So one thing is we need to frame the debate, but these people say they want choice. We own choice. Those who are pro-life own choice. And I, and I say, look, when somebody comes into a pregnancy center, we offer five options. We offer marriage as an option. You know, some couples, this is a great point to go ahead and get married. For others, we offer single parenting. We also offer co-parenting. We offer adoption. That's four. And while we don't offer the fifth, we're the only place where you get an honest appraisal of how abortion works. But all that said, uh, it's interesting to me that those who call themselves proponents of choice will some will deny science 
Those on the right are called science deniers in so many areas, and yet we're told that this is somehow this is somehow okay when it's not a mother's body. This is a separate body. Anybody who knows basic human anatomy knows that these are two completely different human beings. And so it's just fascinating to me that those who talk about science totally deny science when it comes to this subject and begin to scream about choice. And they have already gone so far. You talk about legislation. In California, we just had a, a case, uh, Nifla versus Becerra, that went to the Supreme Court where in California, the law is that inside pregnancy centers, they have to have verbiage either on, on paper or on the walls that we give to clients that tells them where they can get free abortions through Medi-Cal. And uh, we have fought that as a free speech issue. We were in front of the court just a few weeks ago, and it really looks good because a couple of the justices who we would think would vote against us said they have real problems with the law, and it's troubling when it comes to speech. So they're trying to shut down the speech of pro-life centers telling us that we must have this postage signage about Medi-Cal. And then in Illinois, a Republican governor signed a law which says that pregnancy centers have to refer to abortion clinics and tell them the positive aspects of abortion, which we're fighting as well. And uh, it's just an amazing thing that those who promote free speech are shutting down the speech of those who disagree. So legislatively, I'm just asking people to look at the science. Is this a child or not? If it's not a child, do what you want to. You know, I, I don't care. Uh, abortion's not a big deal if this is not a human being. But if it is a human being, let's let's have that debate. So what you're saying is if if somebody raised the objection, you can't tell me what to do with my body, your response is— I would is, say yes. I'm not telling you what to do with your body. I'm telling you what you can't do with somebody else's body, which happens to be in your body, but it is not your body, scientifically speaking. That's right. Hey, I don't have any problem with you doing what you want to with your body as long as it doesn't interfere— with someone else's body. Right. You know, you can swing a baseball bat, but don't do it with somebody's head in the path of the baseball right. bat. Or smoking in a car, for example. You know, That's a lot, right. A lot of states are outlawing that with children in the car. Right, right. It's, uh, we're going so far on one end, and I understand the safety issues. Okay, let's just apply that to human beings who are on their way to birth. We made a mistake in this country. I live in Tennessee. I used to live in Alabama. We made a mistake by saying that a human being living in the South had no rights. And there are many reasons for the Civil War. We can go into history if we want to. But one of those reasons was this very belief of slavery. A human being in the South is not a human being. Well, we solved that one. A human being in a mother's womb, just because of its location, has rights too. Now, I remember when you spoke some time ago and I heard you you said something to the effect of like, let's not focus on the law, let's focus on the culture. Do you remember that? Yes, I, I, you remember it better than I do. But I, <laughs> I, there are people serving in the public square, and I, I've had the opportunity to meet governors and legislators and all over the place who are doing a great job in the public square. So I am not discounting the work being done on the legislative front by any means. I think it's very important. But I'll tell you what, generally politics follows the culture. 
Right. That's that was your point. Yes. yes. And and I think if we can change the culture, then the politicians will follow. Because if you look at big culture changes, we didn't get civil rights because you it's hard to tell me who the great civil rights legislators were, but I can tell you the name of Martin Luther King very quickly. Right. Now there were many in the public square who were doing good things on that front, but I can tell you who Martin Luther King was because he changed the culture. Yeah. And uh, that's what we need to be doing. Now, what about the objection that, hey, if abortion gets outlawed, then women are still going to get them anyhow, and they're just going to be unsafe? What would you say to that? And that's another misconception. One is that abortion has come so far in these days that we've begun to believe that it's, it's very safe. But there are people today who are infertile because of a past abortion, a lot of them. There are many who cannot have babies today. They're more likely to miscarry because of abortion. And it's controversial, but we have found, not me, but researchers have found very clearly there is a link between abortion and breast cancer. And I could go into all the details. It's not safe. I don't care what you say. It's not safe today. And yes, we've every few months or so, we hear about a death in an abortion clinic as a result of abortion. In fact, I had a doc friend of mine in Alabama who came to me and said, you know why I got involved in this? He said, I was kind of on the fence. And he said, but then I had a young lady come into my office who was hemorrhaging. And I called and I found out she had had an abortion. I got in touch with the doctor who performed that abortion. I said, you've got a patient up here in Alabama who is dying because of your work. He said, you need to get up here and help me. And uh, you need to be a part of this because you need to see it. And, and the, doc, the abortion doctor said, well, I can't get up there for a couple of weeks. And so my friend, the doctor, said, I, I saved the girl's life. I was going to do that, of course. But he said, I realize this is just not safe. So this idea that abortion is suddenly going to become unsafe if it becomes illegal is just not correct. Well, I think there's also a, a parallel to other laws, like let's say outlawing murder, just like killing adults. Yeah, which uh, we've done. Yeah, so like you outlaw murder, but people still people still do it. You know what I mean? Exactly, um, exactly. But that doesn't mean that just because the law is not effective at stopping everyone from doing it, that therefore there shouldn't be a law. Uh, I guess there's not a total parallel because one doesn't put their own life in danger in an effort to, well, maybe maybe you could make a parallel there because if you kill somebody, then they're probably going to fight you back. But uh, it's not it's not a direct analogy or parallel, but there is there is a similarity there. W- what about the fact that you're a man? Do people bring that up and they criticize you? Say, what is this man doing, dedicating his life to telling women what to do with their bodies? How do you how do you deal with that? One of the things that that's interesting to me is we get this argument and then we realize that abortion benefits men who do not want to be responsible more than anybody else. It allows a man to go out there and have as many partners as he wishes, and then for three or $400, he can escape the consequences, or 600 whatever it is. He can escape the consequences. In fact, it allows child abusers to escape the consequences because they can force an abortion on a minor. And so here we are telling men hey, this is your, your get-out-of-jail card, is abortion. And then we criticize men for getting involved and saying men need to take responsibility. So that's, that's one of my answers. But look, 
just because I don't carry children to term doesn't mean men don't have a voice. And in fact, if you talk to those in pregnancy help ministries, they are thrilled to see that men are coming forward and saying, we need to get on board and we need to be a part of funding this. We need to be a part of reaching out to dads. We need to be a part of saying to women, look, you may be angry at the man who left you after you became pregnant, but here's a man who wants to come alongside you. Again, I'm not here to have debates with people. I'm here to say we're here to help you and walk with you through it. As we do that, I believe we change the culture. What we're seeing is women who have had abortions are saying, I regret it, and they're speaking out more and more. And those who have placed for adoption are reaching out more and more, and men are coming forward and saying, guess what? That child that I decided that I, with my with my girlfriend or whatever, we decided to step forward and take on this responsibility. It changed my life for the better. So I think it's great that men are involved, and I know I get some pushback on it and do from time to time. I'm not going to back off. I think it's a joy to be a part of this. Yeah. I always think of how pro-choice and the feminist perspective seem to be linked up, and yet... Yes ostensibly half of the the babies who are killed are women it's human rights it's women's rights unless they're in the womb and that's that right se- that seems to be inconsistent to me but obviously i i have a st- strong bias here on this this issue well in fact in indiana they passed a law that you could not have an abortion for sex selection and part of the part of the impetus behind it was that more girls were being aborted than boys because it seems that couples say, oh, I wanted a boy. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why that is. But uh, that seemed to be the case. And they did pass this law, and now it's been overturned by a court. And I think, isn't that interesting? Yeah. The, yeah. Just like you said, the very uh, women who are screaming for choice are seeing their own, their own be eliminated. Yeah. I wonder if you've come across any of the, the work of Nancy Piercy. She wrote a book recently, just this year, called Love Thy Body. And she talked about what uh, she calls personhood theory. And it's this idea that essentially pro-choice adv- advocates have given up the, uh, the scientific fight. And they've recognized now that the fetus is a human life. But yes. it's not a human person because it doesn't have cognitive abilities or consciousness or self-awareness. Have you come across that as an argument yet or no? Yeah, starting to hear a little bit of it because they, they, they're realizing that the bait is being lost on the scientific level. So now we have to put it out in some ethereal, mystical place that no one can question. But here's part of where that argument leads. When you say that if they don't have enough cognitive ability to understand or to think, okay, so where does that slippery slope lead us? We're seeing Down syndrome children being eliminated, and and yet I've got so many friends who have adopted Down syndrome children. If we can find something in the womb through testing that makes a child not perfect, then we're eliminating that child. So I'm trying to figure out where that slippery slope ends. Because if in the womb we're saying they don't have enough cognitive ability, aren't we also saying that those outside the womb without enough cognitive ability should be eliminated as well? What's the difference? Because scientifically they're the same, just different sizes, different points along the human life spectrum. Yeah, there was actually a paper written by a couple of bioethicists that argued for post-birth abortion. 
Yes. uh, They were saying that since newborns, likewise, are not self-aware and they don't have an appreciation of the fact that they're alive, in other words, therefore they could still be killed and it would not count as killing a person and therefore it would be justifiable. I mean, and then you can extend that to those who are in a coma or those with severe mental disabilities and now the sacredness of life is gone and replaced with this idea of sort of like establishing someone's value based on their their intellectual capabilities and that is you're right it's a slippery slope it's pretty scary and that's where faith comes in uh that's what we're trying to say is we have faith that even if we can't see value with our own eyes God created that life, and for whatever reason, we may not understand it. I don't understand everything about those who struggle to do basic things. I I don't understand. I wish I could theologically explain it to everybody and say, this is the answer. There are times when I still ask why. I get that. But do we trust? And what would happen if we had a culture that so celebrated life that we saw those with disabilities as opportunities to learn ourselves? And to be the hands and feet of Jesus, what if we shifted our view as a society and culture? And so I call on the Christian community. I think it's up to us to say we choose to celebrate. And when others can see us choosing to celebrate those in this situation, I think it can change a culture. Well, thanks so much, Kirk, for taking some time to talk about this today. I really appreciate your insight, and your, you, you have such a pleasant demeanor. You're, you're not an angry marcher. You're an active <laughs> lover, you know, and I think that is a real example for all of us who have a passionate view on this subject. Well, thanks so much. I enjoyed being with you. This was a blast, Sean. We'll have to do it again sometime. Well, before concluding, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. First up is that Kirk Walden does have a book he's written called The Wall. And just for your information, The the Wall is not to keep people out, but to provide safe haven for those looking for relief. And you can get that on Amazon. I have the link in the show notes for this episode. Also, we have a big event coming up I just wanted to let you know about called Kingdom Fest which is September 7th to the 9th, right here in the Albany, New York area. It's held at my church here, Living Hope Community Church in Latham, New York. If you live anywhere in the Northeast, I'd love to see you and participate with you in this event. It's a number of different age groups. We have a full kids program, as well as plenty of stuff for all other ages. We have a lot of Bible teaching, as well as music and worship. And in the afternoon on Saturday, we have free time for either sports. A lot of us go to the park and others stay behind and fellowship and enjoy the company and other folks take a nap, you know, but it's a great time with the family of God, a good end of the summer, exciting time to get together. Usually we have about 200 folks who come to this and we'd love to see you there. The registration fee is $90 per adult. It's a little cheaper for kids, and if the kids are under five, they're free. But if you register by August 18th, you can get a $15 discount. So then you're looking at $75 per person covers all your meals, and it helps us to pay for the big tent that we rent and put over the parking lot for food services. And then housing is on your own, but there's just a ton of hotels really close by to the church 
that you can have access to. Check it out on LHIM.org. That stands for Living Hope International Ministries, LHIM.org. And click on Kingdom Fest, and you'll get all the information there. Our theme is Walk by the Spirit, and we're looking at having a great time together. If you're interested in more information about that, you want to ask me any questions, go ahead and email me, sean at restitudio.org, and I'd love to answer your questions about that event. Also, I just want to respond to two comments that people left recently. One is from John Alton, uh, my friend from California, and he writes, Dear Sean, I recently listened to this episode, and there are a couple of things I would appreciate your input on regarding some statements made in this podcast. Now, John here is referring to podcast 55, where I was in the middle of an apologetics class answering the question, did Jesus exist, offering both internal and external evidence for the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on, he says, In this podcast, you say that the Gospel of Mark was given to Mark by the Apostle Peter. At the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that you would provide documentation to show this, but unfortunately, the end of the recording got corrupted and you filled in the blanks yourself, but I did not hear you mention this reference to Mark obtaining his Gospel from Peter. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, God breathed, and also 2 Peter 1.21 that the word of God did not come by the will of man, but men wrote as they were inspired from God. Paul also tells us his revelation came from Jesus Christ, Galatians 1, 11, and 12. To say that Mark got his gospel from Peter sounds to me like Mark had predetermined this, and so I would like to see this reference. Perhaps it's like Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch. Baruch wrote down what Jeremiah told him, but we know that this is what God told Jeremiah to do. Do we get the same confirmation between Peter and Mark? John, just uh, quickly on those three texts you mentioned, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I affirm that 100%. I believe God is behind Scripture. But that does not mean that there is not a human element as well. The way I understand inspiration is that it means that through his Spirit, he was able to succeed in getting written what he wanted to have written. Then the text in 2 Peter one twenty one probably refers to prophecy, and prophecy is really a different kind of genre than the history, uh, especially the Gospels, and uh, I, I think prophecy really is much more of a dictation scenario. I would not affirm dictation for all of Scripture, but certainly prophecy, if you're saying, thus says the Lord, I mean, you're a channel for God to, to speak. But I'm hesitant to say that that applies to all of Scripture, does not appear the rest of Scripture is like that, which of course doesn't mean it's not true. I believe the the Scripture is true, it's authoritative, it's inspired. There are different types of Scriptures. You have Psalms, you have history, you have the epistles, you have more theological treatises like the book of Hebrews, and so on. So um, it's it's a big subject. Then your last text you brought up is Galatians 1, 11 and 12, where it says that Paul received... His gospel is revelation of Jesus Christ. This is this is a word that is talking about uh, him meeting Jesus, his appearing to Paul, and that's when Paul received his commissioning as an apostle, and he solidified his gospel understanding, certainly the resurrection aspect of it, because he saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. So I don't think Galatians one eleven and twelve has anything to do with scripture at all. It has to do instead with 
Paul's commissioning and where he originally got his gospel message from, not not how he wrote his epistles or anything like that. I do believe that Paul was inspired and that God worked with him to get written what God wanted written. Uh, but again, it does not appear to be in a prophetic manner like Jeremiah and the scribe. Now, on to your main question here with Mark and Peter. I have here a uh, really great book. It's called The Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs by David Bursow. And it's a book that has been around for quite some time now, and it's a really excellent way to get into church history without having to read thousands and tens of thousands of pages before synthesizing any kind of greater understandings, because it is a subject index to the early Christian writings. Pretty much everything before 325, he's, I mean, mostly, he's cataloged in here by topic. And so then what you can do is look look up something like, for example, Mark. You can look up Mark, and he has Mark, comma, Gospel of... He's got one, two, three, four quotes in there, all from the Antinicene Fathers, which is a collection you can access for free at ccel.org. That stands for Christian Classics Ethereal Library. Or you can get it pretty cheaply, the paper copy online on Amazon or Christian book distributors. But anyhow, I'll just read these out to you. The first is from Papias, who wrote around the year 130, very early Christian writer, and this is uh, excerpted from Eusebius's church history book, Book 3, Chapter 39, and it says, "Having so this is a quote of Papias, where Eusebius is quoting Papias, having become the interpreter of Peter, Mark wrote down accurately whatever he remembered. However, he did not relate the sayings or deeds of Christ in exact order, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter. Now, Peter accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Accordingly, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For one thing, he took special care not to omit anything he had heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. The second quote comes from Irenaeus, who wrote probably around the year 180 in his Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 1, Section 1 says... After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also handed down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. And then later on in chapter 10, section 5, he says, Mark, the interpreter and follower of Peter, begins his gospel narrative in this manner. So this is a non-controversial issue where early Christians who were in a position to know where the gospel of Mark came from are unanimously saying that Mark was Peter's interpreter. Um, we find the, a very similar statement in Clement of Alexandria, who wrote uh, probably also in the 180s or 190s. And this is from some of the fragments of Clement of Alexandria from the Latin translation of Cassiodorus at the very end of section 1. We read, Mark was the follower of Peter. Peter publicly preached the gospel at Rome before some of Caesar's equestrian knights and adduced many testimonies to Christ, in order that thereby they might be able to commit to memory what was spoken by Peter. Mark wrote entirely what is called the gospel according to Mark. And then a little later on in Eusebius's Church History, Book 6, Chapter 2, Section 15, we get the following little quotation of Clement of Alexandria again, which says, Such a ray of godliness shone forth on the minds of Peter's hearers 
that they were not satisfied with a single hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation. So with all manner of entreaties, they pleaded with Mark, to whom the gospel is ascribed, he being the companion of Peter, to leave in writing a record of the teaching that had been delivered to them verbally. But they did not let the man alone until they had prevailed upon him. And so to them we owe the scripture called the gospel of Mark. On learning what had been done through the revelation of the Spirit, it is said that the apostle was delighted with the enthusiasm of the men and approved the composition for reading in the churches. Clement gives the narrative in the sixth book of the sketches. All right, so those are one, two, three, four, five early Christian, all second century quotations that talk about how Mark was Peter's translator. Peter, of course, was a fisherman from Galilee. And so it's not likely that he would have a good enough command of the Greek language, or certainly not Latin, to be able to address people in Rome. It was probably done in Greek because that was more the lingua franca at the time. And what we see here is Peter, who walked with Jesus and who was one of his inside disciples, relating and talking about Jesus, witnessing, recalling, teaching the teachings of Jesus— uh, recalling the stories of what Jesus did, and Mark is there translating. And as, as a translator, you get to know the story pretty well, especially if he's repeating himself, which I'm sure he did over many years, to different audiences. And so uh, Mark was really the one to write it down, but it's really Peter's gospel. Now, uh, this in no way violates the principle of inspiration, because what really matters here is that God works with the person who writes the book. And so even if there is a human element, there's still also a very significant divine element where God is working through Mark to ensure that he writes what God wants him to write. And, and then you go on in your comment to talk about the Gospel of Luke, and you say, regarding the Gospel of Luke, you talk about Luke interviewing those who were eyewitnesses of the accounts portrayed, which verse 2 indicates. However, in verse 3, Luke says, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first... These words, quote, from the very first, end quote, are translated from the Greek anothen, which in many verses is translated above, which would render Luke as saying, having had perfect understanding from above, which seems a logical statement that fits with the other verse and how we got the word, but also I cannot see any Bible translations that render it this way, which makes me think there must be more going on in the Greek that I am aware of. Really enjoying this class. Thanks for all your efforts to get this material out. Cheers, John. All right, John, so let's take a look at Luke uh, chapter—I know, it's a terrible preacher's joke. Uh, Luke chapter 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So that first verse there tells us that there are lots of people writing gospels and writing uh, biographies, as we would call it today, of Jesus— then in verse 2, he says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So what we have here is a book written for Theophilus, who is a Christian, probably a benefactor, wealthy Christian, and Luke is an investigative historian who did not walk with Jesus, who later on came on the scene with the Apostle Paul, who also did not walk with Jesus during his ministry. And uh, so Luke has gained access to eyewitness accounts and those who have been ministers of the Word that delivered these eyewitness accounts to 
Luke and to others as well. And he is sifting through them and putting together an orderly account from those things that have happened from the beginning. As far as Luke accessing other people, I have a very strong suspicion that Luke spent time with Mary and some of the women followers of Jesus, because in the first few chapters, we get a lot of info about Elizabeth and about Mary, stuff that, you know, I mean, unless God revealed it to him directly, which is totally possible, people would generally not know about. None of the other Gospels know about it. Uh, He also mentions in, I believe it's chapter 7, some of the women followers of Jesus who supported him financially. Another little tidbit that the other Gospels don't mention. So we know that Luke is, is sifting through documents and people's recollections. A lot of these would be quote-unquote, oral documents, and then um, he's he's working them all together. He also probably had the Gospel of Mark at his disposal as a, uh, a starting point. Now, this, once again, doesn't in any way violate the principle of inspiration. Again, so long as God is working with Luke to arrange the material and to uh, detect false accounts and expel them from his account and affirm him when he's working with a true account so that what Luke writes is what God wants written. That is inspiration right there. It does not have to be dictation like it is with the prophets for it to count as inspiration and to be authoritative and to be true and to be able to stake our lives on these Gospels as trustworthy. So I I don't know if I just blew your socks off theologically. I hope I didn't, uh, but uh, hey... Let me know what you think about it, because um, it is an important question. And another comment from Robert Stevenson on Offscript 40, which had the juicy title, Roy Moore, Gay Wedding Cakes and White Evangelicals. He writes, I am coming to this discussion a bit late. However, as a resident of Colorado, I am better acquainted with the Masterpiece Cake Shop issue than those outside Colorado. The issue is not religious freedom. It is that Jack Phillips violated Colorado's anti-discrimination law. While I can understand Phillips' stance, I disagree with it because his only criteria was a wedding cake for a gay couple. He does not have a problem baking wedding cakes for adulterers. This makes him a hypocrite who is judging a couple who are not Christians in violation of 1 Corinthians 5, 12-13. Also, while Scripture is clear that same-sex relationships are sin and an abomination, Scripture is also clear that adultery is sin and an abomination. In other words, Phillips is inconsistent in what Scriptures to apply and what Scriptures to ignore. Let me just insert a comment here, Robert. Th- first of all, thanks for writing in. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, second of all, I don't know how Phillips would know if somebody had gotten divorced because of adultery. I mean, is he going to put everyone through a questionnaire who comes into the cake shop? And it seems rather unlikely. Um, He probably has essentially a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. Like people walk in, just order cakes, whatever. It's no big deal. Uh, If they want a specialized message on it, if it said something like, hey, I'm so glad you committed adultery so we could get married and Philip still made that cake, then obviously you're right. That would be hypocrisy and that would be him accepting one part of Christianity and rejecting another part, which would be totally wrong. Now, uh, if a gay couple comes in or if they're asking for a cake and and it has a message with like two men on it, then you can see how easily this would be or how difficult this would be to avoid for him 
to not violate his conscience on this issue. So uh, I'm not really sure if your point here is sustainable on a practical element, considering he's not going to give surveys to everyone who wants him to uh, decorate a cake. Anyhow, Robert, you go on and you talk about uh, the history of America. You say, I find it necessary to take exception to Sean's bemoaning the secularization of America as this nation was founded as a secular nation. Uh, the whole Christian nation movement was birthed in the mid-19th century and is promoted by revisionists such as David Barton, who, by the way, is not a historian. I highly recommend a site titled Wall of Separation Between Church and State, which is maintained by Baptist Bruce T. Gorley, who has a Ph.D. in history from Auburn University. How many times have you heard or read that Thomas Jefferson coined the phrase, quote, wall of separation between church and state, end quote? The real originator of this phrase was Roger Williams, the first Baptist preacher in the colonies and founder of Rhode Island. I also must take exception to Sean's comment about Maryland being a Catholic colony. While Maryland was founded as a Catholic colony in 1694, England's anti-Catholic laws were extended to the colonies and Catholicism was outlawed. Americans are woefully ignorant of the history of this nation. Okay, Robert, uh, I'm not sure I follow your point on America not being founded as a, a Christian nation. I think it's pretty clear that the gathering of the colonies together as United States was specifically to deal with the British situation and the Revolutionary War, and they had to work together in order to get that done. Uh, as far as the founding of the colonies, they were all founded for different reasons and at different times. Pennsylvania was definitely founded with a very Christian person in charge, William Penn. So, uh, Roger Williams very much uh, founded Rhode, Rhode Island, and it became a haven for Christians of, of different stripes. Even the Massachusetts Bay Colony certainly had a very strict Christian government that wouldn't even allow for disagreement on doctrinal issues, even if it wasn't a criminal issue. Maryland, as you already just admitted, was founded as a Catholic colony. So I'm not really sure what your point is here. Um, there, these colonies, many of them were founded. Some of them were founded for Christian reasons. Some of them were founded for economic reasons, especially uh, in Virginia, where that was uh, founded to grow and to export back to the old world. So uh, I'm not pretending to, to know everything about this, but it seems like I'm not sure what your, what your point is here. There were established religions or denominations all across this land throughout many different states uh, for quite some time. And uh, disestablishment is something that came later. So maybe you can't say America was founded as a Christian nation, but you can certainly say that a number of the colonies were founded as Christian colonies, and that was certainly something that was in the government. And uh, I, I don't personally think that that was a good idea. And I'm glad that there's no religious test to be in the government. And this way, there is freedom and there is pluralism. As I said in the episode, I'm really thankful for that. I'm against secularization in the, in the bullying sense where you are mocked or excluded from career opportunities because you affirm a belief in God or you affirm a belief in the scriptures, as I've just articulated. So uh, we might not be connecting on this point, but thanks for writing in. As to your last statement, Americans are woefully ignorant of the history of this nation. I can uh, certainly agree with that. Uh, I'm not an ex expert on American history by any means. I do have a master's in history, but it's from the first three centuries of Christianity. So 
Um, it's, it's very much focused on the Roman Empire and the Second Temple Jewish period and that part of the world. So uh, I will uh, definitely see that I am no expert on this subject, but it is something that shouldn't be too hard to get the basic facts on, even if there is a lot of spin out there. But anyhow, thanks for writing in. Thank you all for listening to this. We'll be back next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.